So Hebrews 11, we'll read 1 through 3, and then 32 through 35. And it reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through Through their faith, the people in old days, people in days of old, earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Verse 32, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, those people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of lions, and for us today, quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. And now all the way back to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Love to hear those Bible pages turning this morning. These screens are great, but I just love to hear those pages. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bow to the ground and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to the King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of all those instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and they do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. 
But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? And I'd like to pause here for a minute and you guys can, you can have a seat if you like. Just for a little context maybe. Um, so Jody and I got married in 1997. And... After searching and searching for about 10 years, I finally noticed a flaw in her character. <laughs> and, and it's kind of a minor one, but, but we used to get the newspaper, if any of you remember that. Um, and the way it would go is, is I would read the comics. But Jody would kind of search the newspaper and and she would look, it seemed like to me that she would try to find the most awful, like maybe grisly story that was in the news that day. And she just kind of had a, she was kind of drawn to that. And, um, and also when we would watch movies, it would be, it would always seem to be like concentration camps and and just, I don't know what it was. And, and, and I was wanting to watch the Hallmark channel, you know? And uh, maybe a role reversal there in our marriage a little bit. But, but one time she did pick a good one. And um, if you haven't seen A Hidden Life, you should watch A Hidden Life. It's, a, it's uh, from 2019. It tells the story of a man named Franz... Jägerstadter. He's an Austrian farmer back in, um, in World War II who refuses to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler and kind of like join, join the army. And it's an incredibly slow-moving film, and, and I think it's, it's by design, actually, because from the very beginning, you can kind of tell what's going to happen at the end. I mean, he's just he he's a man of just such strong conviction and and everyone in his village and even his priest and just everyone who who we come in contact with they just try to talk him out of this path that he's on you know what's it really going to matter if you if you say these few words and and swear an allegiance to hitler and you can just kind of see the pressure start to build from the very beginning. And you're, you're like shouting at the screen, you know, don't, don't do it. And, and I know this is really dark, but, but it, the, the, the movie ends with like this long drawn out scene of him basically being taken to his execution, and, and, it, and, they, and it was with a guillotine. And I mean, sorry, welcome to Renew Church this morning. <laughs> We're off to a good start. But I, but I just want for us to feel, sometimes the, the scripture is so sparse in, in its descriptions, and, and we just read these stories like, oh, you know, there they are. The king is, is going to throw them in the furnace, you know. It's no big deal. We know the end, but, but I think it's, it's good to, to stop and think about the enormous pressure that these three men were under. And so if we resume in our reading in verse 16, we see how they responded to the pressure. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, the king shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So the boys stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair of their head was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. He's really into shock and awe, I think. <laughs> there is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So that was a lot of reading this morning. So thank you for your patience with me on that. But my interest in this story goes back to my childhood. I don't know if any of you had those big blue storybook Bible, like a big stack of them. My mom would, would read those to us, and, and this was always like the, the most dramatic one, kind of right up there with David and Goliath or, or Daniel in the lion's den, and, and so I always have loved this story. But lately... I've become interested in why certain stories have so much power and, and why we remember them, why they resonate with us, why, why we can relate to it, and, and, and then other stories do not. They just fade away over time and are forgotten. But this is one of those stories. That I think once you hear it, you don't forget it. Now, at Renew Youth Camp, we've developed this tradition 
of asking the groups or the students in their teams to, to act out a particular scripture and we give them a different genre to act it out in. I know that sounds a little weird, but it, it works really good. And, and so this year we got eight different versions of this story. We got Western, Star Wars, sports. We got Gangster, a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> and I have a little concern that, that maybe Darren and Sandra are going to have to answer someday for the low-grade blasphemy that kind of creeps into these skits, but hopefully, hopefully not. <laughs> I don't remember all these skits, but, but what I do remember is the kids had no trouble like understanding the story. Based on, based on their interpretation, I know that they understood what was going on. And so, so I ask you today, like, why is this story so relatable? Because, because I think at face value, it shouldn't be. You know, the story's thousands of years, years old from a culture none of us would understand. I think in our Western culture, the idea of, of a totalitarian like Nebuchadnezzar is, is foreign and, and repugnant to us, and, and we're for sure not being asked to bow down to an idol on a daily basis. But while, while it may be foreign at face value, I think the underlying themes here are relevant, and I think they're powerful as they were the day they were recorded. And, and I think it might be one of the most relatable stories in the Old Testament. So with the help of God today, I'd like to think about why that is. And so as we dig a little deeper into this account, I just have three questions for you that I'd like to consider, three of them for you note takers. The first one is, what is my image of gold? What is my image of gold? And the second one is, will my faith inspire others? Will my faith inspire others? And the third one is, is my faith in God alone? Is my faith in God alone? And so, as we think about those three things, let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful to be here today, and we're so thankful for the testimony of Scripture Thank you for the way you've preserved everything that has happened to your people uh, for a record for us to take comfort from, to be instructed from, and to, uh, I guess, to remember uh, in times of trouble. So uh, we pray that your blessing on the service today, that, that everything that happens here would be uh, um, a blessing to you and to borrow from Dallas. I just pray that whatever you want me to say, I say, and whatever you don't, I don't. And we want to be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, as I read the Bible, starting with Cain and Abel, what we see uh, oftentimes is, is a record of people suffering for their faith in God. And, and throughout the centuries after the Bible, uh, there's, a, there's a record of believers following the example of Jesus, of his suffering and, and even his death, as they choose to follow God no matter what the cost. 
And we know this is happening today um, at an unprecedented rate. Around the globe, Christ's followers are persecuted and killed, you know, maybe more than any time in history. But for us here in the U.S. and in the West, maybe there's signs of that coming, but so far, that's not happening for us. This gathering today is proof of that. We're, we're meeting here in peace and freedom and... and um, you know, kind of in a way that our brothers and sisters overseas will never experience, probably. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about that, I feel a little guilty or uneasy about it. Like, where's my part in suffering for Christ? And I wonder, where is our Nebuchadnezzar? And where is the fiery furnace for us? Where is that image of gold? Well, I want to suggest today that the devil is playing a much more deceptive game than he was playing that day on the plains of Dura in front of the statue. I think today he packages the statue in a lot of different ways. So I want to, I want to consider what, what did the idol demand of the people bowing to it? What was it asking? Well, maybe there's a lot of answers to that question, but I think at least it was demanding that they misplace their allegiance or maybe let the statue intrude into the space that should only be occupied by God or maybe turn your back on God and bow to some inferior thing. Does any of this sound familiar in our lives today? I like to look again at, at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? Uh, this verse, some scholars think it could be better translated. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my God by worshiping the gold statue I have set up? I think this reveals a little something about what the statue actually represents. And, and maybe a little background about Babylonian conquest would be helpful here. So you see, the Babylonian kings, they employed a strategy called domination through assimilation. Domination through assimilation. That means they would take their captives away from their, from their homeland, from their families, from their religion from everything that was familiar, and they would indoctrinate them into the culture and the, and the religion of Babylon. So the statue didn't necessarily re represent one particular god. Instead, it represents the worship of many gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we see this in the text. He was king of a city that was filled with all different people from all different places. The, the herald said... People of all races and nations and languages listen to the king's command. So you could say he was king over a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational city. That also sounds kind of familiar to me today. So with his statue, he's saying, I'm not forbidding you to worship your God. I'm just saying 
You need to worship him in addition to all the other gods. I guess this to me is how the statue relates to to us today, really uh, perfectly, I think. The devil is not giving us a crystal clear choice of bow down or die. I'm not sure that he wants to take our life that way. I think instead he's content to carve away at our worship one like little slice at a time. Some of you know my favorite C.S. Lewis book is a little book called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, if you're interested in a look at human psychology from a, from a Christian perspective, this is the book for you, for sure. <clears throat> and in that book, Lewis uses, I think, a brilliant device. He gives us a series of letters written from a senior, <coughs> senior demon named Uncle Screwtape to his understudy, Wormwood, and their goal is to gain the soul of a young man through temptation, manipulating his thought life in any way they can. It's kind of like a, a reverse psychology literary, literary device. But here's what Uncle Screwtape writes to Wormwood about slicing off the life of a, of a believer with a series of small compromises. He says... You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to report some spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, and in this case, the enemy is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without mileposts, and without signposts. A diabolical communication. So I ask you today, do you, do you have an image of gold? Is there a gradual road that you're on somewhere or sometimes? What's taking you away from the worship and service of God or maybe replacing your worship of God? I guess for myself, I find that this changes over time. You know, as a young father, I, I worked a lot, and I, and I just told myself that it was all for my family. And some of that might still be there, but, but now I feel like it's changed to more like a desire for status or security through money. <clears throat> or maybe, maybe I want my children to succeed and, and be well accepted so that it makes me look good as a parent. And uh, uh, right now, I'm a little bit worried about what you think of my sermon. You know, there, there's, there, there's a fear of man that's creeping into my fear of God. So what about you? What's coming between you and God? Is your statue built around a desire for wealth or a need to be accepted in the in-group? 
Are you dabbling in sexual sin or, or perhaps immersed in it? You find yourself relaxing your standards that were once firmly built around the word of God? Are you a different person here at church than you are the rest of the week? Is this gathering a priority for you? Or do you just kind of fit it in if it works out with everything else that's going on? Maybe it's your cell phone or your Netflix subscription. I'm not trying to beat anyone up here. I mean, this list is for me too. I'm just asking if, if, if your place for God is at the top or is it obscured by some statue? If you want to do a little self-evaluation, if anything on that list resonated with you or you're thinking of some other thing that might be on that list, just ask yourself, how would I feel if I lost that thing? I think it's important to realize that these three young men, they were not on some fringe religious group on the edge of the Babylonian society. They'd been selected to be groomed for service in the government. Let's read, uh, we're going to bump back to Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Alec, you would have been in. <laughs> Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And then down to verse 18. <clears throat> when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is their Hebrew names before they were changed. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. <clears throat> so they were already enjoying success and, uh, and respect and privilege. And I think it's relevant to consider how alluring that life in Babylon would have already been to these young guys. You know, they're, uh, they're gone from the land of Israel. And, and there's no, um, it's not looking good that they're going to go back. You know, and so, you know, maybe they could just have a new life and, um, and just be Babylonians. And we know that they were faithful in the face of that temptation, but for sure it had to have been a strong temptation. 
So I think it's the same for us today. Our life here is filled with opportunities to compromise, to take detours, and to and just kind of blend in with the culture that we live in, and really to give our allegiance away to other gods. But what if, instead of doing that, we choose the path of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, early in life, if you read back in their history, they decided to place their faith in the one who would, who would walk through the fire with them, and it changed the history of Babylon. What would happen if we did that too? What if, what if you brought your faith in a vibrant and healthy and, and beautiful way into your school or your workplace or you took it with you to the gym or, or onto your school board or, or in a more powerful way in your family? What if we did that? So that brings me to my second question. Will my faith inspire others? Will my faith inspire others? And for this question, I'm going to go kind of out on a theological limb, but I do have Dallas's permission, so, so if there's a problem, you can take it to Dallas. <laughs> and I'll just kind of say up front, I really don't have any support for this line of reasoning, but bear with me because I hope that it'll illustrate something for us. And and I don't know if you've noticed this, but one question that comes up as you read this story is, where is Daniel? You know, in chapter 2, he's the main character. He, he, uh, he like, intercedes with, the, with their, their overseer to get them on a different diet so that, so that they don't have to eat the unclean food in Babylon. And, and he's the obvious spiritual leader of the group, but, but there's no mention of him in chapter 3. <clears throat> and most scholars believe that, that he was assigned to another area of the kingdom or else he was elevated so high that he was exempt from this decree. And probably that's what I should go with too. But, but all of this is speculation because the, violent, the Bible is silent about his whereabouts. And so what about another explanation? What if Daniel had a failure of faith? Maybe he didn't bow down, but maybe he just was able to avoid the situation somehow. And again, it's pure speculation. And if you read about Daniel, there's nothing to indicate that that's even a possibility. And I think, in fact, if it were true, the Bible would tell us about it because the Bible is ruthlessly honest with its heroes. If you think about David and Bathsheba and Abraham and Sarah and, and our boy Samson from the last couple of weeks, probably this is not what happened. But let's just say that maybe it's a possibility. Daniel's enjoyed a lot of success, and now he's, it feels like, maybe second in command to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's, maybe he's just beginning to enjoy that position and that influence in the most powerful kingdom on earth, and suddenly now he's facing the uh, threat of death for his faith. So maybe he just found a way to be out of the spotlight until the whole thing blew over. Seems like Nebuchadnezzar kind of changes directions pretty quick, so maybe he knew that. But then he sees his best friends dragged away and thrown into the furnace 
and the Son of God himself shows up to walk with them in the fire and rescue them, and the hard heart of King Nebuchadnezzar just turns to water. So what would that do in the life of Daniel? Assuming my hypothesis is even close to correct. What happens to you when you see your friends or family or someone you respect move out in faith or, or be faithful? Perhaps it would turn him into a man whose faith in God was forever after unshakable. A man who would rely on God with such profound faith that he miraculously interprets dreams. He could prophesy boldly to King Belshazzar, the, the next guy, I think, about his impending doom. Just, hey, you're done. You know, just stand there in the king's palace and say things like that. And then when he, when he comes, when it's his turn to deny God or die, he went into the lion's den filled with faith in God. I just offer that you should maybe today take some time and read the rest of the life of Daniel, or stay tuned. We're coming up on that here pretty soon. But amazing uh, man of faith, and then all of his prophecy that, uh, that comes out of his life, he was amazing. But I think this is the effect that public courageous faith can have on the lives of others. If only we're just willing to put it on display. You know, over the centuries, this, the, the church has been persecuted repeatedly and still to this day, like we were saying earlier. And, and you know, for the life of me, I can't really figure out why the devil keeps doing it. Because every time the church explodes with growth under persecution because real faith, you know, becomes evident or emerges in times of persecution. And when real, real faith emerges, it inspires and convicts other people to do the same thing. So this brings me to the third and maybe the most important question. Is my faith in God alone? Is my faith in God alone? This question kind of like shouts out to me in the reply of these three Hebrew men when they're facing death their faith. <clears throat> and I think that verses 16 through 18 are, are among, for me, maybe the, in the top five most inspirational verses in the Bible and for sure in the Old Testament. And this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And here it is. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So powerful. What I hear... What I hear them saying is, we trust in God, period. Now, we'd like him to save us from the fire, but, but we trust in him, period, not for anything we'd like him to do, not for his power over you, King Nebuchadnezzar, but for God's sake alone. 
When I read this, it sounds like a foreshadowing of Christ's prayer in the garden. Look at Matthew 26, 36 through 39. It's Jesus is facing the cross and he's praying in the garden. And then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. This is the furnace for Jesus. He went a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me yet. I want your will to be done and not mine. And so Jesus is praying essentially the same thing. He's facing the fire, knowing that God could easily spare him. No problem. Easily done, but trusting him unconditionally. And so what about you and me? What happens when we face the fire? What, what happens when, when our relationships suffer? or when our finances fail, or, we're, or for one reason or another, life gets unbearable? Or what about when cancer comes knocking, or when you wake up in the morning to another day of pain? Or maybe your, your plans for the future somehow got derailed. You know, when I look around this room this morning, I know that there are a lot of stories of pain and suffering. <clears throat> this world that we live in, it serves up a stunning array of ways for things to go wrong. And I, I would say I'm glad you're here in a, in a place of, of faith and prayer and a place where we can help each other. And so, so let's think about doing that. <clears throat> Thank you for the water, whoever put it up here. I think many of you know that my wife Jody is suffering from a, a skin condition, kind of a rare disorder that has manifested itself in an intense itching and burning like full body rash, and it's persisted now for some nine or ten months, and we have been so blessed by your prayers and meals and kind words, and I know that she misses all of you. She misses this gathering. But for us, and, and especially for Jody, this is our fiery furnace right now. Every day is a test of her trust in God, and, and you know, the suffering of the body eventually creeps into the spirit. You know, we've earnestly and repeatedly prayed for her to be healed, and I know so many of you, so many of you have done the same thing. And you know, though we've been granted a lot of smaller, I guess smaller miracles, if there is such a thing, so far, God has withheld full healing. And so day after day, now month after month, we're faced with a choice. Do we trust God only if he will save us from the furnace? Or do we also say our, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will trust him? And I got to tell you, I don't know if I can answer that question honestly. 
I'm trying to have this kind of faith, but it's just not coming all that easy for me. But I really take comfort from a detail that we find in this text today. And in verse 24, we read this. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? <clears throat> yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Imagine that. When Jesus comes on the scene in the story, we don't see him outside like beckoning them to come out of the flames or even like reaching in and pulling them out. Instead, we see him with them in the fire. He's with us in the furnace. Isaiah 43, 2 reads, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. <clears throat> Psalm 23, 4, When even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may, may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I guess what I keep asking myself is, is kind of like, what other option do I have? Do I want to join in with Job's wife and say, curse God and die? Or do I instead commit Jody into the loving, powerful hands of Jehovah? You know, sometimes she prays, God, just put me in your front pocket. Oh, boy. Many nights I don't have words I don't have words for prayer so I just read the psalms <clears throat> aloud to her and we take comfort feel like we're commiserating with the ancient writers as they pour out their fear and their anger their questions and their and their where are you god but you know almost every one of those psalms ends with some kind of a declaration of trust and faith in God in spite of the circumstances. And that's so much better than curse God and die. <clears throat> so as we, as we kind of wrap up here, I just kind of want to ask you a little bit, what is it that builds up your faith? Because, you know, I think it's something we got to... It's not just going to be there magically when the fire turns up. And, and these are just simple things, but, it, but, is, but does reading the word build up your faith? If it does, then, then, then do that. I know that's an obvious, but, but what about fellowship with other people and hearing, you know, hearing their stories? There's so many, even in this kind of small group of people, I know there's countless stories of God blessing you in your time of trouble or or pulling you out of the fire, or being with you in the fire. 
So fellowship can do that. Maybe sharing your story with another person and remembering what God has done. You know, there's this great little story in, in, the, in the, I think it's in Exodus, where they cross, the, they cross the Jordan River by a miracle when the waters go back and and that's kind of all over, but God says, I want you to build up a monument here so that you can remember what I did. And you can tell your children, and so maybe that's what it is that builds your faith. Maybe you remember what God has done in the past for you, or maybe you look back and you see what he did. You didn't see what it was at the time, but you look back and you see what it was. You know, that can happen in our life groups or any number of ways, but, but sharing your story and, and building monuments in your mind for what God has done. Maybe it's looking at other people's faith. You know, there's tons of examples of that too, but you kind of have to look for it or ask people. <clears throat> I mentioned trials, but, you know, maybe you can see in retrospect, what a trial has worked in your life. I just pray that that, that would be that way. So whatever it is that, that builds your faith, then do that or look for that or seek that out because maybe it's not right now. Maybe it's coming. Well, probably for sure it's coming in the future, some kind of a furnace to face. So you have these three questions to answer today. What is my image of gold? Will my faith inspire others? And is my faith in God alone? I'd just like to close with Psalm 91, 1 through 4. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. And I love this little bit right here. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we just thank you again for the witness of Scripture of these young men so many years ago who refused to bow. And even facing death, they, they were sure where their salvation was. And so thank you that we can have that very same assurance. Would you build our faith, Lord? Would you... Would you help us to face the furnace? Would you, would you be with us in the furnace, Lord? And we, and we are trusting you for that. We know you will. So just thank you for our time together today. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.